Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow, buddy! You look healthy and happy. Veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. That's why he developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of your pet food myself. Okay, okay. I'll start with a salad. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Good Friday Agreement came around and there was a euphoric sense of this was it. You know, thank God that your children wouldn't have to grow up in that same situation that we grew up in. There was a feeling of hope and optimism. But for the people, whether they were come from a loyalist or Republican community who lived in those interfaces, the place that had those peace walls, the places that had the division, peace was a lot slower coming for them. You know? I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement when an incredible task was achieved and political divides agreed to peace in Northern Ireland. So what has that 67-page document meant for those living north of the border and for their futures? And can we ever really move on from such a bloody past? Today, I'm talking with Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris about growing up in West Belfast, about working the crime beat towards the end of the Troubles, and of being there for the momentous occasion 25 years ago when the impossible became a reality. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So we're on to talk about uh, the Good Friday Agreement and I want to hear all your stories. Well, some of them, because I'm sure most of them we can't talk to the nation about knowing you. But um, you're coming on the 17th of May. The Limelight Crime World is live in Belfast and we're going to be talking about Amerta and all sorts of other things. Um, So hopefully we will um, have a bit of fun on that night. but in the meantime, let's start with, well, I want to talk to you about two things and they obviously aren't connected at all. But uh, the riots that I was so jealous that you were, uh, or certainly the feuding in the middle of the feuding that I was so jealous that you were in the middle of and I wasn't last week. And then obviously the Good Friday Agreement. Now, they're not connected, are they? Well, I mean, I suppose you could connect them in some ways because 
the thing is, the the people who were involved in that feud, when I was at, at Newton Arch, there was, you know, mass men on the streets. We were told that they had machetes, at least one had a handgun. They were in there. I mean, I was, uh, you know, as close to them as you could be to someone. And they were, you know, the, the youngest probably was in this maybe late teens or early 20s. The oldest couldn't have been any more than in their, their later 20s, maybe 27, 28. And, you know, next week is the the... The 10th of, of April is the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And we'll have President Biden is coming to Ireland to visit and he's going to arrive in Belfast. And the Great and the Good will be here the following week. We're getting the Clintons and George Mitchell might be coming and all sorts of people, Bertie Ahern, who were involved in that sort of historic time. And yet, you know, we talk about how much that changed our lives. And it did, don't get me wrong. But it, you can't help but feeling sad that we've left a generation of young people behind. The fact that those paramilitary organisations, those loyalist paramilitary organisations, and just for context, that trouble that's been going on in North Down involves two factions of the UDA, of the Ulster Defence Association. They were heavily involved in um, murders, paramilitary murders throughout the conflict, I suppose, if I try to think of maybe the most high profile, the murder of Pat Finuck and the solicitor was carried out by the, the West Belfast UDA. Um, they were involved in hundreds of sectarian murders. You know, Johnny Adair was the head of C Company of the UDA. This was a very notorious paramilitary group, and yet they called their ceasefires in October 1994, which is something I remember very well. So the Combined Loyalist Military Command, as it was called then, that represented those mainstream loyalist paramilitary groups, they made a statement and they said that there was going to be a cessation of violence to allow the peace talks to take place. And yet we still have our young people getting sucked in to mm. those organisations. The IRA ceasefires came before the Loyalist ceasefires. That broke down. Anyone of a certain vintage will remember with the bombing of London. Um, and that was the, the breakdown. And then we had a second IRA ceasefire in 1996. And since then, we have had relative peace. But yet, if you're not bringing everybody along with you, is it really mm. a perfect peace? If you're leaving, you know, hundreds of young men behind here still being roped into paramilitary organisations, well, then clearly there was still work to be done and still is work to be done. Yeah, so many years on. But bringing us back to 1998 and like you must have been reporting at the tail end of the troubles. You're in around, we're in around the same age. 1998, I can recall being up in Belfast for the Good Friday Agreement. Um, there was a lot of drink had in the days after it. Um and yeah, I've I've memories of being up there reporting on that, obviously not too, um, you know, I was only young enough at the time, I suppose I wasn't really even totally engaged in exactly how important it was. But you must have been kind of, you know, starting the career as that was happening. Until then, it had really been my lived experience anyway. The part of West yeah. Belfast where I'm from would have been, you know, that very heavily hit during the troubles, particularly, you know, in my um, childhood. The hunger strikes were a very big part of that. I can remember those funerals, those huge, huge Republican funerals. That, that it seemed very grey. There was a lot of a lot of despair. There was a lot of funerals went on. There, there was a lot. I mean, it, it sounds bizarre now. But, I mean, I could have told you that the windows used to shake of the house when a bomb went off. And, at, you know, at the age of nine or ten, I could have told you where it was, whether it was in the city centre, whether it was closer than that, because you could tell by the, the boom that the noise made. You knew the sound of shots and what was what was the sound of gunfire and how close that might have been. Um, my brother, I was just talking to him the other day about this, and he says he remembers that we got some money. I don't know, it must have been someone's communion or confirmation or something. And 
we decided that we would not tell anybody, but we got on a bus and go into town to go to there was a big toy shop and in the town. And while we were there, there was a, a gun battle in the street. And we hid behind a sort of electricity box and then a bus stopped and the bus man opened the doors and said, jump on the bus quickly. And we were probably maybe about eight or nine. And we jumped on the bus and the bus drove us back up and we walked up home. We never even told anybody that there was bullets <laughs> flying over top of our heads because we'd have gotten in trouble. Um, so, I mean, it was all just part of your life. And you accept, I suppose, I, as a reporter, I've been down to, like, you know, conflict zones, been to, you know, refugee camps where there's refugees fleeing current wars and the children who were there were just very accepting almost of their experience because it was all they knew and I could sort of relate to that because you know I, mm. I grew up in a situation it never seemed odd to me it never seemed strange to me people that live lovely peaceful quiet lives that seemed quite odd to me um but my own children were very small when the ceasefires were called, and I remember that day, there's you know there's very historic footage. It shows you a sort of cavalcade of, of black taxis with tricolours waving out the windows, flying up and down the Falls Road. And I remember coming out of my house where I lived at the time, which was down in, in Clonard, which was on an interface. And there was a lot of sectarian attacks took place back and forward across that interface. And when we first moved into that house, and I had lovely neighbours, but my then, now ex-husband, then partner, had drove a motorbike and he parked it outside the house, just like a little terrace house with no gardens, you know, just completely like two up, two down houses. And one of the neighbours knocked the door and says, look, you're going to have to put that around the back because if there's basically a sectarian murder squad comes down looking for someone to kill a house with a motorbike outside, it clearly has a young man living in that house. Yes. They'll just kick your door in and you'll be the first to go. Mm. So he used to, you couldn't get through the backyard. So he then used to start driving the motorbike through my living room every night <laughs> to get it into the backyard. Um, and again, I mean, it was funny I remember telling my children and I'm saying how bizarre this was, but it was all just part of your, your life growing up. So when that happened, my children were quite small. Um, I had all three by the time the, the Good Friday Agreement came around and there was a euphoric, I suppose, sense of this was it. You know, thank God that your children wouldn't have to grow up in that same situation that we grew up in, but also that it would address the causes of conflict because the causes of what went on here go much deeper, I suppose, than people now. We try and judge it now by modern standards, but it wasn't by modern standards. But by then, there was a real optimism that not just with my children not live in violence, but they'd live in a very equal society where they wouldn't be discriminated against, but they'd have equal opportunities. And they do. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing. I mean, when I sit here now speaking to you, you know, as a woman who came from a very nationalist sort of Republican working class community, you know, I have seven brothers and sisters. My mother was a cleaner. Um, you know, there was no money there. There was discrimination that clearly went on in society. We lived in what was built as a unionist state for a unionist people. Am I discriminated against now? Hell no. Of course I'm not discriminated against. I'm a bloody journalist. Do you know what I mean? I'm sitting here making a podcast for you. I'm a woman of great privilege, you know, and I know that, but I wasn't always. And But yeah. society has, has changed very dramatically, and my children have had very happy lives as a result of the Good Friday Agreement. But I went back and did my journalist course in 1998, and by 1999 then I was doing my um, work placement, and by then I went straight into reporting in uh, parts of North and West Belfast. And as part of that was the Holy Cross dispute, mm. which was the mm. dispute I'd said at Children's School. And that was one of the first, I suppose, major stories that I was covering and the, all the, the conflict that was gone around with that. And I realised that while I lived in, in West Belfast, where already you could see 
the dividends of pace. You could see the sort of shoots of, of new growth. There was these you know, shopping centres being built. There was, you know, a sort of a, a, an, up, an, up, an upbeat feeling. There was a feeling mm. of hope and optimism. But for the people, whether they were come from a loyalist or Republican community who lived in those interfaces, the place that had those peace walls, the places that had the division, peace was a lot slower coming for them. You know, you could solve that sort of um, IRA, British loyalist conflict, but you couldn't solve that sectarian conflict just as easy. It was it went too deep. It was too close. It was neighbour on neighbour. And what went on in Holy Cross was a real demonstration of the fact that there certainly wasn't peace at that Ardoin interface during those years of 2000, 2001. But there was peace where I lived at that stage. And, you know, when I left you the other day, I went down to, for a little tour of Belfast. I love Belfast. I think it's a great city. Um, I love lots of places in the north, but I think Belfast is a cracking city. It's so much fun. You'll always bump into somebody who has plenty to tell you, plenty of stories to tell you. You know, on a, on a less light note, I suppose, I think... It's you don't go very far before you meet somebody who's been deeply affected by the troubles, by the 3,500 people that died and the 50,000 people who were injured during the troubles. But I went down with Connor McCockey, the photographer, down to do some pictures um, because they're doing a piece on this show up in the limelight. And we went around the Shankle and then we went around the Peace Walls and we went into Ardoin and I just... I came home, actually, and I said to my girls, you have to go up and look at this and actually engage in this and look at it. We are here. It's like as if we're in a completely different country. We were only two hours away during all those years and coming up to the the Good Friday Peace, Peace Agreement. But we could have lived on a different planet. And it's just interesting to go and see that down in the Shankle and the mural and the American tourists are there and the black taxi drivers have brought them in and everyone's getting their photograph taken. It's so strange. And then there's kids playing. And then when you go around, the peace walls are just extraordinary. The idea that these were built in a city where people were nose to nose hatred. And you go around the corner and there's some new housing. And I said to Connor, is that is that mixed housing now? The innocence of the question, really, the ignorance of the question. Is that mixed housing? He said, oh, absolutely not. And I'm stunned to silence that that is still not the case there. But that just shows you, doesn't it, that that sort of healing, that change is going to take a lot longer. It's very difficult. I mean, believe me, there's massive amounts of work goes on. And I was like the youth workers who work in those areas, they are the people who are doing the God I don't believe in's work. Do you know what I mean? They're out there with those young people week in, week out, and they bring them together in so many ways. And obviously, people socialise in different ways now. So a lot of those connections that young people make online or through social media, they don't particularly care, you know, what community or what religion someone is. They just care if fancy them or if they're good looking, you know, and if they're yeah. going to go out with them. So all of that has, has changed. And the city centre now is a completely shared space and it belongs to everyone. But mm. you do see that you know, there's still the murals and the flags. And there was a, for a long time, I reported on what was called at that stage re-imaging. And there was millions of pounds of, you know, public money, European money pumped into trying to re-image these murals. It was like, take those paramilitary murals away and we'll put, you know, images of something positive, you know, a sports star from your area or, or something positive from your area. But the fact is, I, I actually think that those murals now have become such a part of the fabric of the history of Belfast. And it's sort mm. of sanitized it to take it away because it happened. And and that's the, the thing about it is, and I don't think it is, the tourists love them. I mean, they really oh, do. <laughs> but sure, I was in my element myself. <laughs> 
I was hopping out going, who's Zephelin? Who is this? But, but um, yeah, I agree with you. I think they are absolutely the fabric. There's something that just makes Belfast special. And there's something that makes you connect with what happened and what it was about. I mean, that it'd be different if a sports star isn't going to do that, okay? And, you know, a local hero isn't going to do that. But these murals very much do that. You come away from them thinking and kind of starting to understand are it just engage with engage with what happened and especially people I think from this island because there is that definite sense that you know across the border people look the other way. Yeah, and I, I also remember when at those very sort of early years of being a journalist, I still carried with me all I suppose the, the prejudice and the, the experiences of my youth. And I didn't realize how normal our situation was. But during the, that Holy Cross dispute, the sort of the world's media landed in Belfast for that. You know, all the, the, the sort of conflict reporters had all gone home. Our war was over. And then in 2001, this mad dispute happened outside a children's primary school and they all landed back in, albeit for a very short time, because that was, I think it was the, the first day of school was like the 3rd of September that year. Mm. And on the 11th of September, two planes hit into the World Towers and the world's media was no longer interested in Belfast yeah. I can assure you and off they went and it was left just to ourselves and the local media to do that but for that short time you know Sky News CNN the whole lot were here and I remember there was a story where a young guy had been shot he'd been um, shot in the knees and what you know paramilitary style shooting what we used to call punishment shootings by a paramilitary group and my editor at the time said the mother wants to speak go you around to the house and speak to her and I went into the house and Obviously, it was a girl, I can't, don't even know where she was from. It was a very well-spoken, very posh, much posher than me, let's, but that doesn't hard, let's face it. Um, <laughs> English girl or from, from some channel who had been covering Holy Cross, but had decided this would be a great story, you know, that this 15 or 16-year-old had been shot in the knees by paramilitaries. And so the mother said, <laughs> um, well, they told me they were going to beat him, but the, the, the no call to shoot him. And I didn't think there was anything wrong with this. I'm just writing this down because that sounded <laughs> perfectly reasonable to me. <laughs> I mean, she said, like, he's a wee shit. I can't control him. But they told me they were just going to give him a beating and scare him. But they took him away and shot him. They never called me shooting him. And again, I'm like, sounds fair enough. <laughs> I don't particularly see anything wrong with that. I mean, if you bear in mind, I grew up in a plane when there was no normalised place. I never said a police officer do normal policing. The only police officers I ever seen were accompanied by a full unit of the British Army. And so this didn't seem that strange to me. And then I looked around at this woman's face and I could see the horror in her face. And she was like, sorry, you need to go back a bit. Did you give your son to paramilitary groups and they shot him and you willingly handed over to them? And she went, aye. They said they'd only beat him. I didn't say they could shoot him. And then I went, Oh, Frank, right? That's absolutely bonkers when you think yeah. about it. But I mean, occurred to me until I seen it through the eyes of a stranger, how bizarre this, this actually was. Um, and I was glad that I got that perspective that day because after that, I thought that is not normal. And, you know, we shouldn't have the, the, the sort of vigilante justice, uh, the sort of summary justice that existed in my world was not how normal people live. Um, and it was only for some lovely girl who I'm sure probably needed some sort of counselling in her work, probably give her two months off or something to recover from the trauma. She probably tells that story a bit differently than you do. <laughs> and I was just like, what's your problem? Like, I mean, they're only about to beat him. Um, anyway, and there he was, the, this, you know, kid sitting with the two plasters on his leg, who from that day I came to know very well because he, I then had to used to cover the, 
magistrates court and he was a, a regular down there which I always say when I see the the people here I reported on those type of attacks and then you see them constantly on the court lists for it's usually very petty crime yeah you know if if those kind of sort of punishment style paramilitary style shootings worked would be living in a crime-free utopia and mm-hmm. clearly we're not and the fact all you're doing is brutalizing those young people who then go back and commit more and more crimes. In fact, they become more and more disengaged from society. But it, it it took that day for me to look in the face of the lovely, you know, Poppy or whatever her name was <laughs> <laughs> to realise that, yeah, this is a bit bonkers, love. I'm a bit screwed up. So what, why did you, what, what drew you to journalism? I suppose because of where I, where I grew up, I lived in a sort of very newsy political world anyway. Um, and, you know, my dad would have got, you know, three newspapers a day. He'd have got you know, the Irish News in the morning and the Daily Mirror and the, the Belfast Telegraph in the evening. Um, and we were surrounded in newspapers. But the, the people who reported, and you'd have seen a lot of reporters, I mean, you'd been walking past reporters at the end of the street along, you know, with, you know, around the, the, the burning bus to get to school. And they were almost always, I would say, male almost always, always very, very posh. Um, and nearly most of them were, were English. They had no reflection of anyone that I'd ever seen. It wouldn't have been a job that I thought I could do. Um, but then I remember as I got older and I got into my late teens and early 20s, reading newspaper articles about things that had happened close to where I lived or people or experiences. And this, the, the, the description of my community was just not where I lived. You know, mm. we, we left, obviously lived in very difficult times. There was a lot of violence went on, but there was also, you know, the, this was a community that were, were suffering, you know, as well and surrounded really decent, good people and people who were really trying to make a difference to their children's lives. And there was a real push on education for young people from that community at that time. And I thought, God, that's, I mean, they're talking about as if we're savages, meet our babies, you know what I mean? It's, it's just nuts. And in fact, on one occasion, my younger brother, who was very wee, blonde-haired, very angelic-looking child, um, was on his way down to the shop to buy sweets, and he was stopped by a, a, um, a photographer who was working for some, I don't know, some English tabloid at the time. And he said to him, I'll give you a fiver if you pose for a picture. And he got my wee brother, who was about five or six, to wrap a scarf around his face and handed him a milk bottle with a rag. I hanging out of his if it looked like a petrol bomb and took a picture of him. And then give him a fiver and walked on. And I thought like that picture appeared somewhere to make it look like these tiny little mm. angelic children were rioting and all he was doing was going to the shop at the time. So it used to stick in my head. Now, now when I go to speak in schools and especially youth, I think young people sometimes are very disengaged in the media and they go, you portray us in, a, in the wrong way and you only come looking when there's bad stories. I'll say, well, if someone is telling your story, right, tell it yourself. You know, go and get involved in that and, and get involved in your own kind of storytelling and portray your own community that way. And as time went on, I remember thinking, well, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could do that as a as a career. You know, writing's always something that I liked. But I did all sorts of jobs because I had small children and I, I had two. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as I say, I went back in my sort of late 20s, went in and did my, my work placement. And the place where I was working at the time, it was like the weekly paper in the Middle West Belfast. They were very short staff. A few people had left and they asked me if I come in and do shifts. Um, and I went back to the, the college course and said to the lecturer, and he said, you'll learn more there than you ever will in here. You need to come in on a Friday to do your short hat and your law. And apart from that, I'll sign you out and you can go and work four days a week. And so that's what I, I did. So my big move back into formal full time education, I think last from September till about the January, February, till the work placement and then went back again um, and just got a job then from there on. It makes me sad, though, too, that young journalists now don't have all those 
because every town had a weekly newspaper, you know, mm-hmm. every city had maybe had two or three of them and they could have started there and there was such a good grounding for, for young journalists to come through and learn their trade and make contacts and just figure out how to speak to people and communicate with people and how to get the best out of people. And, and the fact that the media has has changed so much over the years and those local papers don't exist. And particularly those local papers are under are under increasing threat all the time now. And I agree with you, I would have started on a local paper as well. And the local politicians went on to become TDs and ministers. The local guardie went on to head up units, you know, the from the from the courts and the judges and the solicitors and everybody you met and engaged with and spoke to. And you'd be on and first name terms with them then. So That's then you're it. yeah, as yeah. they progress your career and you progress the years and they just don't have that anymore, young journalists. That that I think is is such a shame because I could always tell when I went to work in, in daily papers, I could always tell the colleagues who'd come through the weekly papers from the ones that had just landed in the Akushi Daily newspaper job because the weekly ones were hungry like and they knew everything and they knew everyone and I could always tell I wonder what newspaper she worked in because you could tell the yeah. ones who, who just had that new sense straight away and you knew they'd come through a, you know a really good weekly and could put their hand on a, a phone and ring somebody and get the information that was was needed you know because it is all about building a trust isn't it and you know that somebody knows that you're not going to turn them over and you know what I mean they you you know they're not going to turn you over and that goes on for years and um you know that's how we build our, our really good contacts but um so tell me is you love Belfast obviously um yeah and it's been a good city to you and are you sort of are you looking forward to this anniversary are you going to celebrate it is it going to be something that'll be big in your home you know, I think it could be a bit pessimistic about it because obviously the institutions, you know, that's this is strand two of the agreement is that mm. we'll have, you know, these institutions which don't exist at the minute because the DUP have brought them down. But people be be needlessly, I think, pessimistic because even just this week, you jog your memory by writing things. So I did a feature this week on the prisoner releases, which was one of the like massive, most controversial parts of the Good Friday Agreement. The fact that they were going to open the prisons and let these people out. But I mean, there are people who got out at, overall, I think it was about 500 and something prisoners got out. In total, about 20 were ever recalled. And that went down into single figures almost to the ones that stayed recalled, as in, as in committed other offences when they got out. And as part of that, I was speaking to one of the sentence review commissioners who was responsible for saying who got out and when. Um, I was speaking to an ex-RA prisoner who went on to become an MLA, who went on into, into politics and who has you know, travelled the, the world talking about our agreement. And I spoke to one of the very first people who was recalled and who went on to have his license recalled two times after that. And that was Mr. Adair, Johnny Adair, who um, couldn't manage to keep himself out of prison even after after he got out then and about the different experiences. And when you think back to then and the times that we lived in, times that we live in now, like chalk and cheese, there's much to be grateful for. There's much to celebrate. There is obviously work to be done because there's there's sections of our society that were left behind. And that includes there's places where there are young people being dragged and groomed into those distant Republican organisations. And that's because they've been given some nonsense romanticised version of that conflict that existed. And, you know, I wish I could sit them down and tell them a few stories from my childhood about how there was absolutely nothing romanticised or beautiful or glorious about that. Um, it was really difficult, really hard time. And it isn't something I'd want for my children. Definitely not. 
Um, and then there's those those young people in loyalist communities, and and for them, it's almost a, it's a different kind of lure because there's very high levels of educational underachievement, and there's not really you know much in the way of employment prospects for a young man with no education. Um, and then they see people who are these loyalist leaders who have self-appointed titles and they have, you know, lifestyles beyond what you can imagine if you live in a very small housing estate. They appear to have, you know, decent cars, the, the, the turkey teeth of the holidays in Dubai, the, you know, the glamorous girlfriend. And they think, well, I'll aspire to that because that's something I can do. Like, what have mm-hmm. you to do to get that? Sell a lot of drugs. That sounds easy. And so they're getting dragged into those, that sort of paramilitary groups, which are basically now in the main, and there are some who have transitioned and are playing a really sort of important positive role in the community, but in the main, they're just organised crime gangs now. They're what In the South, you would just call that an organised crime gang, but here we still have them under the umbrella of paramilitarism. So while the majority, the vast majority of our young people are living better lives, there are communities where there are young people who aren't. And the answer to that problem, I think, is just so clearly economic. You know, you invest in those communities you make sure that they have the best opportunities possible in terms of training. You know, education, third level education isn't for everyone, but everyone can, you know, find a job that they love. And even if you have, you know, a decent job that you're paying, financing a wee car, saving up to go to, you know, Magaluf or whatever once a year, you're not going to be interested in going to prison or risking your freedom for hanging around with a paramilitary organisation. You know, you're going to have aspirations to get yourself a wee girlfriend, get yourself a nice wee house, settle down. And that, I think, is the kind of, um, you know, aspirations that were very easily achieved for young men, but they don't see that in their lives. They see their lives going on a different path. And it means then we have situations like we've had in North Down, where, you know, very young men are being the foot soldiers for paramilitary leaders and a few that really has nothing to do with them. It's to do with the egos of the the bosses of those organisations. And really, we can identify the ages that are vulnerable there at risk. You know, it's 14, 15, 16 and have all the services wrapped around them. And obviously then when those kids, if they can manage to to go through it without joining one of these organisations, when they hit about 21, they get a bit of sense anyway. And those other things you've spoken about, the car, the holiday, the girlfriend, are kind of more interesting to them. Just a few things there, you know, that people may forget. But Jeffrey Donaldson and Arlene Foster, of course, walked out of those talks and the run up to the Good Friday Agreement and left David Trimble and the Ulster Unionist Party forming the DUP. Um, and what was interesting, I was listening to something there recently about the um, the run up to it and about Billy Wright's murder in the Mays prison, of course, that just happened as they were discussing, they were trying to get this peace process together and Mo Molam had to go into that prison and she had to try and calm things down. She was an incredible woman and one of the few women actually, that were there. There were so many men there at the table of the Good Friday Agreement. The brilliant John Hume and Seamus Mallon, such lovely two men, um, met them a number of times over the years. Uh, Jerry Adams, obviously, Martin McGuinness, John, uh, Gary McMichael. Anyone remember him? He seems to be gone. Uh, but there was men, men, men. There was the Women's Party, a small grouping of women, the Women's Coalition um, that had just formed. But Mo Molam, like, was incredible woman, wasn't she? There, there's a lot of 
play called The Agreement in the Lyric Theatre in Belfast at the minute. And I went to, to see it at the weekend. And the, the woman who's acting with Molan is amazing. She has her mannerisms to idea tea. But she just betrays how she was a woman in a very male world. I mean, during the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, I remember being at events and people saying, well, there should be more female representation. <laughs> but it's it's representative of what went on at the time because yeah. Mo Molan was no longer alive. Otherwise, she'd have been front and centre of all of those events. And as you say, she was at, told by the Northern Ireland office, do not go into the maze prison. It's a security risk. You can't go waltzing in among paramilitary killers. And she just went, no, I'm doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And she went in and she had a meeting with Michael Stone, with Johnny Adair, with the leaders of those paramilitary groups and, and convinced them to stay with it and say, look, stay with this process. We'll get this over the line. It will be worth it in the end. Um, and, and you know, they have given interviews previous to that. Adora has at least where he said about the respect that they had for her because they believe what she was saying was true. Um, and also then her, her her diplomacy went on. And remember, Bertie Hearn's mother died in the middle of that. He actually, I think, had to get a helicopter down to go to the funeral and the helicopter back up again. Didn't even get to stay at his mum's funeral. This was going on. David Trimble was trying to sell this deal to unionists while Ian Paisley and the DUP were standing outside mm. um, those negotiations on the lawn, singing hymns and shouting that they were all on these and traitors and were selling out Ulster. And all of this was going on amid a backdrop where people were thinking, is this the last chance? Is this the last chance saloon? If this breaks down this time, what's going to happen? And no matter how imperfect and flawed it is, and all peace agreements are flawed and all peace processes are flawed, there are hundreds if not thousands of people walking the streets right now who might not have been here had they not managed that because I remember those late 90s years and everything that went on then you know you had those you know mass pub shootings um, you had those attacks on the bookies where it was just like indiscriminate gunmen were going to do anywhere at that stage where they knew there were might have been a sort of Catholic barn right and shooting it up. Then you had the Shankle bomb where the IRA bombed a fish shop in the Shankle because they and and the, the bomb went off, killing like two children and, and ten people in the Shankle, who, you know, people still have spoke to me and talked about trying to claw out the rubble with their their upper hands. Um, we've had, you know, reports, police ombudsman reports into what the collusion went on in those bookmakers' attacks. And one of the young men who's only a teenager who was shot dead in that. His mother died shortly afterwards, completely of a broken heart. She just took to her bed, wouldn't eat, wouldn't sleep, wouldn't do anything. She couldn't do anything. And her, um, you know, her her other children had said the bullet that killed him just travelled through time and killed her as well. And that's the, you know, the truth of what went on. Because we have a book called Lost Lives. It documents all the people who died, the troubles, and tells their stories, albeit in very short, abbreviated form. But it doesn't tell the stories of what happened to their relatives afterwards because, you know, I had a, a cousin who was who was shot dead. He was shot dead by a member of the, the British Army. In fact, it's historic in terms of Northern Ireland and the, the soldier who killed him was the first person to ever be convicted of murder while they were in a uniform on duty in Northern Ireland. Um, and my cousin was a roadie for bands. He was a roadie for Bananarama and Spandau Valley and he'd been on tour with him and he was just back for a couple of days to see his mum when he was shot dead and like his life was joyous it was full of joy you know he was traveling the world he'd been in germany on tour with Spada Valley, um and he was just back for that when he was shot and his mother and father you know my aunt, aunt Brady and uncle jim they just never recovered from that they just yeah. you know they were just they were just shadows of themselves after that i can remember you know remember seeing them at events and things but they just you could see the joy it went out of their lives you know the complete and and that just is what it did and that was the untold i suppose cost of what happened here and that doesn't doesn't happen now. We did have sporadic attempts, and let's not you know gloss over. Different Republicans tried to shoot a senior police officer earlier this year in Oma, and his young son witnessed that. 
the the fact is that it is small and it is sporadic and it is groups that don't have any real public support at all. They can do terrible damage to the young people's lives who they suck into those organisations. And that's where the unfinished part of the peace process is. But the part that we did manage to do, I think that's worth celebrating. And, you know, I'm very, very glad. And I'll be, there's an event at Queen's that's going to go on for a couple of days. And I will be there and I will enjoy listening to the stories of all those people who were involved at the time. But also I'll enjoy listening to the stories of the young people because there's a class of young women who I spoke to who were part of a, a politics group and they're going to give a, um, they're going to speak at that event about what the Good Friday Agreement does in the future, if it means to them. And they weren't even born when it happened. And that's important too, you know, that their voices are heard as well because we'll all be, you know, dead and gone and in the ground when they'll have to, to take this place forward. And, and that's uh, important as well to hear their voices. So while there's some young people getting left behind and others who have really benefited from, from it, I do think that there's no, there's a lack of political will sometimes to admit that it was a success and to push on with it and try and get the rest of that work done. But, you know, the problems that we have now in terms of maybe drugs and mental health and things like that, they exist in every city, everywhere in the world. You know, it's not like we're unique in receiving that. We do have what we call generational trauma as a result of the, the troubles. Um, but I do think, you know, it, it's something that was worth, it was worth when I, I watched that play and I watched this on the last three days leading up to the, the agreement, even though I remember the news reports and sitting watching at the time, thinking, will it happen, won't it happen? Um, when you see it, you know, portrayed out like like that and that, that sort of very urgent three days about getting this over, you realise such different people, completely different personalities, massively different agendas. And yet, you know, people like Mamolan managed to bring them all together and get them together and get that deal done. Um, and when you think about Bertie O'Hara and Mamolan and Tony Blair, like three more different people you couldn't have get all had particular agendas going on. Absolutely. Um, but they were central to that. And in the middle of it, you have Bill Clinton as well coming in and going, right, let me, what can I do? You have George Mitchell sent as an American envoy. I mean, um, it, it, it makes for, for a great political drama, let me tell you, but I'm very glad it was our reality. It most certainly does. Well, look, it's it's well worth celebrating and to all our friends in the North and in Belfast, enjoy the day. So thank you, Alison Morris. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.